Hey everyone. I usually have pretty basic tastes. Calvin and Hobbes, Harry Potter, women. But sometimes I love something dark and bleak, and then I make Kellen read it. Today's book is The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which sounds like a children's book, but only if your kids like reading about alcoholics. <laughs> and this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father... And a door salesman. <laughs> That's what I'd tell my wife and kids if I worked for the CIA. <laughs> In this scenario, you walk into a drafty building and say, hey, ever wonder why you're so cold all the time? <laughs> no, I was just, I came up with that because I am so forgetful. And I know that my first day at the CIA, they would be like, all right, you have to create like this whole separate story for what you do. And then when I got home, I, I would have forgotten that entire assignment. So I just have to say the first thing that came to my head, <laughs> honey, I got a job at the, as I'm opening my front door, a door factory. <laughs> I have a handle on the... <laughs> <laughs> they gave me these cool sunglasses and this ear wire. <laughs> <laughs> Told me to stop being such a knob. <laughs> I'm not joking in the same direction as you. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I'm tired of metaphorical titles. We should call this book The Spy Who Got His Girlfriend Killed by a Nazi. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Of the last sentence of the book. <laughs> All right, if you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Salt Lake City, Utah, December 9th through the 10th, then Dallas, Texas, December 16th to the 17th, and then Des Moines, Iowa over New Year's. Go to kellenerskin.com for tickets. Parentheses, tickets might not be available for Des Moines quite yet, but keep checking back. End parentheses. <laughs> Finally, a quick note, we will be taking our first break in two years, the week after Thanksgiving. So we'll do Mistborn, and then a one-week break, and then we will return to serve you. Thank you for your tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> Go enjoy Cyber Monday with your family. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't want to get in the way of that. <laughs> so I, I chose this book because it's my favorite spy story. I just think it's very clever. The author, John le Carré, was actually in MI6. And all his novels are like, what if you were clever enough to win the Cold War, but you're still unhappy because you're British? <laughs> <laughs> but wh what did you think, Kellen? I do find it interesting that both Le Carré and Ian Fleming worked in British intelligence. But Fleming was like, hey, what if a spy were sexy and great at gambling and eating expensive stuff? <laughs> and then Le Carré was like, what if a spy were just a regular spy? <laughs> It's way more grounded than Bond. There were no eye roll moments for me. Um, that being said, I wouldn't have minded the occasional motorcycle chase, uh -huh. but <laughs> I've probably been spoiled by Matt Damon movies. I was really drawn in by this picture that Le Carre paints of this world of mistrust that I'm assuming is not a far cry from the reality of dueling intelligence agencies. Yeah. So I, I did enjoy it. I do have to ask, though, Dave, I feel like I never know when you're going to like a novel or not. And based on how you felt about Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles, you described as like uneventful and not thrilling. How does a novel like this differ for you where 95% of the story is just people talking? <laughs> Again, I enjoyed this book. I'm just trying to figure you out. <laughs> 
Well, first, there's something I want to agree with you on, which is that I think the problems with James Bond are when it's too unrealistic, and the problems with John le Carré are when he's too realistic. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, dude, I know the world is bleak. Do you have to tell me in every book? (laughs) It's so true. I would say the thing that cements this above Hound of Baskervilles for me is just when the puzzle box is revealed at the end, it was just such a jaw-dropping moment for me. I'll talk about that in my first point. The other thing is that, for a reason I can't explain, sometimes I just love a good bleak book. Like, I don't appreciate or learn from 1984. I love 1984 as a book, and I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that episode, which is still one of my favorite episodes, but I brought it up. I was like, uh, yeah, this is fun to read once. I don't imagine myself rereading it like under an apple tree during the summer. And you were like, oh, I've read it several times. (laughs) (laughs) I can't explain why when I'm not rewatching the early Pixar movies, I read this dumpster fire. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. All right, lesson one. All warfare is based in deception. That line's from The Art of War, but it actually fits the main storyline of this book. So, spoiler alert, here's all of it. (laughs) We have our hero, Lemus, a British spy, and the author hated James Bond. He wanted spy characters who were realistic, but then Lemus still gets with a woman 20 years younger, so I guess that part was accurate. <laughs> Lemus is done being a spy. All of his agents have been killed by this East German prick named Munt. And by the way, can we appreciate how deliberately unsexy the names are? <laughs> Instead of James Bond and Goldfinger, it's Lemus and Munt. <laughs> they sound like a law firm that's always getting sued by its former clients. <laughs> so the, the Brits ask Lemus for his last mission to frame Munt. Basically, get the communists to think Munt is a double agent for the Brits so that they'll execute him. So that's the whole book, is Lemus... He gives up everything. He loses his job. He pretends to be an alcoholic. He leaves the country and he succeeds. He makes the other communists think Munt is a double agent. And then at the last second, he's exposed and the mission fails. But then here's the twist. It turns out Munt actually is a British double agent and the communists had almost caught him. So the Brits sent Lemus to, quote, frame Munt so that Munt would seem innocent once the framing plot was exposed. And now Munt has the credibility to go kill his enemies in the communist party. It was one of my biggest holy crap moments in any book I've read. Also, a weird unintentional reveal in the book uh, to Lemus's character is that he's essentially this fed-up spy for the British government, and then he falls in love with this woman who is like, I'm a communist. And he's like, I, I don't really think about those things too much. <laughs> <laughs> So after reading this book on deception, I've started noticing how many jobs rely on deception. Not just the obvious ones like military and espionage, but if you watch Steph Curry play basketball, half of his game is just tricking people. Yeah, one of my favorite moves is when he drives toward the basket wearing those mustache glasses. (laughs) So the other two is like, who's this guy? (laughs) Whereas... If you watch Shaq highlights, it's rare that Shaq scores on you by tricking you. (laughs) Also, deception is valuable in comedy. There's a part in Parks and Rec where Andy Dwyer is helping April find a job, and he says, 
We got a whole list of all the things you need out of a new job. And he reads apple juice, barbecue sauce, Count Chocula. Wait, oh, sorry. That's the list of cool new nicknames I want people to call me. <laughs> like that joke works because it fools you. All right. Lesson two. We love watching people go rogue. So again, I enjoyed this. I realized early in the reading that I'd have to treat it like an Aaron Sorkin film because it's mostly just dialogue. You know how a couple of years ago someone crunched the numbers and found that the average NFL game is three hours long but contains just 11 minutes of guys playing football? What? A hundred percent true. Yeah, you can Google it now and find 20 articles on it. That's to me like why personally basketball and ice hockey are a lot more fun, especially live Uh because they just don't stop, you know? Yeah. I think about that when I compare soccer to tennis. Soccer might have a whole game with no goals. Tennis, literally every point, a point is scored. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I do forgive this book's lack of action because I think the Cold War was already a scary time to be alive, especially in Eastern Europe. So with the context of that built-in fear post-World War II, I know he probably didn't need to then add a bunch of explosions to get readers' attention (laughs) at the time. In fact, the opening action sequence is literally just a few people watching a guy on a bicycle who rides for a bit and then gets shot and falls over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I think gunshots are only fired at the very beginning and the very end Mm -hmm. of the entire spy book. (laughs) Yeah. This is the type of book where if you saw the trailer for the movie, you would be like, this is going to (laughs) be amazing. Brian Cranston's probably in this the whole time. (laughs) The most fun part of the book uh, for me is in the first couple chapters when the main character, Limas, he doesn't exactly go rogue, but in order to pretend to defect from British intelligence, he acts out this whole specific plan of slowly unraveling at work. You know how most of us fantasize about the most dramatic way to get fired? Mm -hmm. Like that JetBlue employee who, after the plane landed, he blasted out the window and jumped down the emergency slide. (laughs) That's incredible. It's one of my favorite stories. In this book, Lima slowly sinks into alcoholism. He gets ruder to people around the office and eventually gets demoted and then let go. Then he works at a library as a rude alcoholic, which is funny because those people aren't usually the librarians. They're the ones using the internet at the library. (laughs) And then the last part of the plan is to intentionally get thrown into prison in order to convince the Germans that he's legitimately lost his patriotism. But here's where he loses me, because if I were going to intentionally commit a crime to get arrested, I would do something fun, like a TikTok on top of the Statue of Liberty or like slash all the employees' <laughs> tires at a DMV. There are just so many possibilities. What do you think you would do, Dave, if you were going to go to jail on purpose? I would I would be a Batman who just beats up criminals at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's an exaggeration that Any book I read, if Goldman Sachs comes up, it's because they did something bad. (laughs) And they never go to jail, so this is my chance. (laughs) 
So Lemus's big plan to get himself arrested is to punch a grocery store cashier in the face twice. <laughs> and look, I get it. I know we've all come across that cashier who can't scan a product because the barcode's missing, and then they ask you if you know the price, and you're like, nope, and then they act like it's your fault that you don't work inventory at Target. <laughs> but even this seems excessive. <laughs> like Maybe just one punch. Yeah, maybe in the, like, solar plexus. <laughs> anyway, it's fun to see him do all of that. Uh, and then after this part of the story, he then lies to people and gets lied to. And then it gets darker and darker, and then it ends. But my takeaway is, if you want to go to prison for three months, there are better options than just to assault some low-hanging fruit. <laughs> Which is another great place to hit someone. <laughs> All right, lesson three. Make your point clear. The main point John le Carré was making in this book was, look, are we really fighting for freedom if we have to lie and murder to do it? And I get what he's saying, but first, he talks about the evils of being a spy while he was working as a spy, and he didn't quit out of disgust. So it's hard to take you fully seriously when the work you're criticizing is the cushy day job you kept so you could write your novel. <laughs> and second, I know both sides of the Cold War did terrible things, but in this book, he's like, the communists torture and kill tons of people, and we're trying to kill this one guy who's our enemy. So we are the same. <laughs> like, hold up. <laughs> With that said, I did like this quote from the author about the Cold War. He said, the right side lost, but the wrong side won. <laughs> That's how I felt about the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> what I love about that is that I don't follow sports, but statistically... <laughs> Most people are going to agree with what I said, just based on <laughs> populations. <laughs> All right. Lesson four, the rationalizing of amorality is timeless, just like a diamond, which is ironic because <laughs> a lot of diamonds are mined by amoralistic corporations. Every kiss begins with kill. <laughs> So something I enjoyed about this book is the discussions of the ideas behind espionage, which, at least in the movies and literature, often seems to have in the job description committing actions that governments turn a blind eye to. So at one point, Control, which is the name of the guy who's the head of the circus, which, by the way, can we talk about how this is an insane name <laughs> to call an intelligence agency, even a fake one in a book? Like, credit where credit's due. Ian Fleming at least came up with cool names for organizations like Spectre and the Spangled Mob. Okay, maybe it was one for two, but... <laughs> That's a real name. It is. They make their first appearance in the book, Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> anyway, when Lemus is questioning the ethics of his job, Control answers with, quote, We do disagreeable things so that ordinary people can sleep safely in their beds at night. And I, I just found this fascinating because I've heard this argument in so many different stories since then, like in the Bourne series to The Dark Knight Rises, speaking of Batman again. Uh, but when Commissioner Gordon slash Gary Oldman says, in that moment, I hope you have a friend like I did to plunge their hands into the filth so you can keep yours clean. 
and everyone in the theater had to wipe his spittle off of their faces. <laughs> anyway, I just thought it was fascinating that this sort of reasoning has been around in storytelling for the last 60 years, but it's really more of a toxic principle that's likely existed since the cavemen. <laughs> That first painted deer on the wall had tortured a wolf so the other deer could live. <laughs> I guess it would have been harder to be a spy back in caveman times because a tribe would be like, wait, who, <laughs> who's that 11th guy who now lives with us? <laughs> the one who looks really closely every time we start a fire. <laughs> Who that guy who, when I go for a walk, he pretend to sit on park bench with two holes punched out of a giant stone tablet that he pretends to read. <laughs> All right, random facts. This author has a strength that is also a weakness, which is his books have real surprise at the end because you never know if it's going to be happy. <laughs> at first, that was thrilling and suspenseful for me. Then I read too many sad endings in a row and I had to quit and I haven't gone back. <laughs> at one point, uh, when Lima suspects that the place he's staying at has been broken into, it reads, quote, he lowered himself into a crouch, putting his hand into the side pocket of his jacket. He was quite calm, almost relieved at the prospect of action. And at this point in the book, I was like, me too, buddy. <laughs> Every writer wants to be memorable. And one thing about John le Carré is, I remember everything he ever wrote about torture. <laughs> it's permanently in my brain. So I'm going to repeat it to you. He has a book where he says, you know, the best torturers are the ones with a sense of compassion, because you need to know what the other person is feeling to be good at your job. <laughs> it just sounds less threatening in the moment, because like in the movies... Uh, when the person's tied to the chair, there's always the bad guy who introduces the torturer. <laughs> he's usually like this guy who isn't talking. He's just he's just sort of unfolding some set of tools in the corner. <laughs> but can you imagine if the main bad guy was like, this is Dr. Peters. <laughs> he's an empath. <laughs> he has another book where he says, Oh, yeah, we try to give every Asian at least one secret, because then when they're tortured, they have something they can give up to make the torture stop. Oh. And then in this book, I've read this before, this character has been tortured, and he says, All the time you say to yourself, either I shall faint or I shall grow to bear the pain, and the pain just increases like a violinist going up the E string. You think it can't get any higher, and it does. Oh. And any parent of a kid learning violin can relate to both sides of that metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine uh, like a covert operative just at home with his family, but struggling with PTSD. And his daughter is just endlessly practicing on the violin. <laughs> and at one point, he just snaps and he's like, the operation is in Belfast. <laughs> so in 2006, Time Magazine released a list of the 100 greatest novels of all time. And this one made it. Though, I don't know what it ranked because I was only able to find an alphabetized list, so it <laughs> ranked S. But you'll be unimpressed to know that I have only read 10 of the books on the list, and I haven't heard of at least 25 of them. Wow. 
But enough about me. Ever <laughs> since our episode where we roasted the Da Vinci Code, I've been hyper aware of how authors end their chapters. And in this book, Le Carre bats about 500. Here are the best two examples of what I mean. This first one is a great one. I think it's the end of chapter three. Some way down the road stood a figure of a man in a raincoat. He was leaning against the railing, silhouetted in the drifting mist. As Lemus approached, the mist seemed to thicken, closing in around the figure, and when it parted, the man was gone. Cool, right? Foreboding, ominous. Now here's the end of chapter nine. He wished Lemus a good day, and then walked down the seafront. It was lunchtime. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> like what does he expect us to do like like i couldn't turn the page fast enough but what was on the menu <laughs> maybe that last line was an explanatory note he wrote to his editor <laughs> <laughs> sorry about this chapter ending <laughs> haven't you finished a chapter where it's like and then they drove into the sunset, and you're like, yes, but what is the next meal? <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from the spy who came in from the cold. One, all warfare is based in deception. Two, we love watching people go rogue. Three, make your point clear. Four, the rationalizing of amorality is timeless. And five, here's a fun idea for date night. Climb over the Berlin Wall. It is hard, though, as Batman to say a quippy line about a complex financial crime. <laughs> this is for rigging the LIBOR index. LIBOR index. 